0: You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mescouta, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. We are continuing our sermon series through the letters of John today, picking up in the letter of 3rd John. If you guys would turn there with me, I would like to read it aloud to you if you'd stand with me while I do it. We're going to tackle verses 1 through 8 this morning. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You may be seated. This will be uh, one of a two-part sermon uh, through the letter of 3 John, and then we will be done with the uh, letters of John. And it's meaningful if you've been with Mercy's Door for some time for you to think about the arc of the letters of John. An argument has been made, Um, it may be true, it may not be, that these three letters were written at the same time and intended to be distributed at the same time. That 1 John was written for a broader audience to be distributed and disseminated more broadly beyond just the uh, single church being addressed. That 2 John was to be specifically received by a given congregation, and that 3 John is written to a specific man within that congregation named Gaius. I think it's probable um, in my reading about it, but there's no way to really know that. But what we can see is that John has three different levels of focus and intention in each of the letters, that in 1 John, he's speaking broad doctrinal truths that have widespread application, and in 2 John, he's clearly addressing some specific things in a certain church, and here in the 3 John, he wants to talk to Gaius, and we're going to see this interaction between him and Gaius, and we're going to learn a little bit about this man Gaius. and. Uh, his interactions with these traveling missionaries um, and, and, and preachers that have come through his church. And as we look at the life of Gaius and we look at the relationship between John and Gaius, and as we look at the relationship between Gaius and these ministers, my hope is that you will see for yourself what the heart of Christian relationship and ministry is meant to look like and that we can all be encouraged in it. And so be praying to that end as I preach. We'll go one verse at a time, beginning with 3 John, verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. In the opening verse to 3 John, John is revealing himself as the elder. You guys all at this point, if you've been here, know who John is. The Apostle John, writer of one of the Gospels, lives his life taking care of Jesus' mother after Jesus ascends to heaven. And then in the days after the fall of Jerusalem, he lived in the area of Ephesus, overseeing a network of house churches over which he was an elder. And so he identifies himself as the elder here. And this term elder has many meanings in the New Testament. Minimally, we would see it as being synonymous with the word pastor. And that shows us that John, at this season of his ministry, is primarily identifying himself in that office. It doesn't mean that he was no longer an apostle. It doesn't mean that he wasn't a son or, or or a disciple. But it means that in this season of his life, the title with which he most identified was that of elder. And we see that in his letters, that he's writing very pastorally. And this letter, maybe most of all, as you see the way that he addresses one specific man and his love for this man. The term elder is often used also to denote a person of respect and wisdom and leadership in the church. And so he's establishing his credibility and his authority as he speaks. But he forgoes the use of his own name. And this is something that John does in all of his letters. He doesn't care to name himself himself not in his gospel, and not in his letters. And so even as he is a respected leader and shepherd, he humbles himself in the story, always. But the church would have known who he was. There was no need for him to say his name because he was living interpersonally with these people. He knows Gaius personally. So his name was well known. And then he addresses this man who he calls the beloved Gaius the elder to the beloved Gaius. Gaius is a common name in Roman antiquity, and it appears many times in the Bible. We see it in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, a couple places in Acts, and I think in all these cases, we're talking about different Gaiuses, as best as I can tell. If this is one of the Gaiuses who appears somewhere else in the Bible, we could know some other things about him, but I don't think we can know that for sure, so I'm just gonna treat him as his own own Gaius. And... um, So we'll make no assumptions about him. But what we do know is that John has a relationship with him where Gaius is his beloved Gaius. He knows him and he calls himself the elder when he addresses him. And so there is an implied relationship between them whereby John is the pastor or the elder or the shepherd or the disciple maker of this man, the beloved Gaius. He may have been a new convert. He may have been a learning disciple. He may have been a growing church leader. It's unknown. Uh, the Catholic church traditions say that John um, commissioned this Gaius from Third John to be the bishop of Pergamum, but we don't see anything about that until almost the year 400 A.D., so I'm not sure it's true or not. And then he uses this key verse, this key phrase in verse 1, where he says, "'Whom I love in truth.'" And love in truth is a key phrase in all of John's letters. We've, we've, we've been reading it so often. He shows that there's this inseparable relationship between Christian agape love and truth, which is often represented as the very embodiment of Jesus in the gospel. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And this indicates all of John's teachings about loving in the truth. It indicates that his love for Gaius is not merely like sentimentalism or personal affection, but that it's grounded in their shared faith and their commitment to the gospel truth. And this is a portrait for us in the church that when we address one another and we call one another beloved Andrew and beloved Jack and beloved Nathan, that I'm not just meaning that I like you, And we're not just meaning that we've got some shared affinity. We're not just meaning that we've got some shared goals, but that we have a shared. Christ, and we have a shared indwelling love, the very love of God that resides within us. There's this tendency in the world today, we talked about it a little bit over the last several weeks, to separate truth from love as if truth is seen as this, this hard thing and love is seen as this soft thing and that Christians are caught in this tension between not trying to be too truthful or not trying to be too loving, but John never speaks in this way. He always speaks about loving in truth, loving in truth. He brings these two together, and we want to be people who embrace the way of loving in truth. It means to love one another, not just in emotional ways, but in a grounded way, where I love you by walking in the truth. Of course, when I say the truth, I mean the gospel, and I mean the person of the gospel, the truth, Jesus Christ. That when we walk in the gospel, what it means is that when I'm living life with you and I'm trying to love you in the truth, love you in Christ, love you in the gospel, when you guys are trying to live that way with one another, it it doesn't mean just that you're being nice. It means that your ears are listening for when somebody is departing from the gospel, where they are putting back on the old, the old chains of slavery and, and working their way into righteousness with God that was purchased for them freely. When I love that person in the truth, I'm reminding them of the gospel. Don't put on the old chains of slavery. Walk in the light that you have been purchased into by the blood of Jesus. When somebody is, is, uh, is working as a faithful uh, minister of the gospel and you see evidence of life in them and the spirit at work in them and, and there's a gospel testimony in their life and you, and you see them walking in the way that John sees Gaius walking here, you celebrate that and you point to it and you help them to see the truth within them. You help them to see the love within them, the person within them, the new creation that they are. Loving one another in the truth means pointing out what is true when they forget it and when they're walking in it, celebrating when it is on grand display and calling them back to it when they are prone to forget it. The love that John has for Gaius is this kind of love, not one that competes between truth and love, but one that is firmly rooted in the truth of the gospel. And so this correspondence is drawing us into this type of community, I would say, where we see this portrait of two brothers, John the Elder and Gaius, the young believer, maybe young church leader, and the way that they move toward one another in truth and love. And we see this, this nurturing relationship between them, right? Like that there's a spiritual father and that there is a disciple in this relationship, and this is also very common in the first century church, and it's something that we want to see at Mercy's Door, that we embrace our role within the broader body of Christ to interact like this, to say, just, I mean, have you ever been a part of a church where somebody really invested in you, where maybe you would go so far as to call them a spiritual father to you, where they really took you under their wing and they walked with you in those early days of your faith, or maybe when you were in a, a backslidden condition where you were where you were under the weight of, of persistent sin or under the weight of, of failure to believe the gospel over your life, and they walked with you and they nurtured you back to health in the gospel. Have you ever been in a relationship like that? It is the model of the church that we would walk in relationship like the one that we see between John and Gaius, where we are compelled to invest in others, to mentor, to teach, and to guide them as they walk in faith just as they did. Then we move on to the second part of his introduction where he says in verse 2, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. And so here as he continues his address of Gaius, he once again calls him beloved, further expressing his deep affection for him in the truth. And he combines the love for this fellow believer and his spiritual insight and leaderly guidance into a reflection of God's care for the people. This is very pastoral because he's moving, he's moving on from just, hey, it's me, I love you, to something more specific. He says, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health. So he's starting to unveil some wishes that he has for Gaius, for his holistic well-being. Because he says, remember, it's not just his spiritual health that he's looking after here. Remember, he says, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. There's a biblical perspective that John has about the brotherhood where he's concerned with the whole person. And remember, this is in stark contrast to some of the stuff that John was was up against in his day. This disembodied philosophy of Christianity where there were claims that Jesus didn't really have a body and that everything physical is bad and only the spiritual is good. John has gone to great lengths, especially in 1 John, to work against that doctrine, and here he's displaying it in his direct love of a specific man, Gaius, by showing care not only for his spiritual condition, but also for his health, for his body. He enters into that space, and there's at least a suggestion on my part, maybe I want to see it because it's a a ministry that I need in my life, but I think it suggests that there's at least potential that Gaius is not in good health, that that John is thinking about his health and praying that he would be in good health when he prays for him. I don't pray for good health for people who are healthy, I pray for good health for people who are not. And so he's addressing his physical condition and his spiritual condition, he sees the wholeness of the person as he extends the care of friendship and shepherding to this man. But then he's got this clause, as it goes well with your soul, and that suggests that Gaius is living in the truth and love in God, living a faithful life, and John is taking note of this, encouraging him in what he sees as a testimony of health in him, that he does have a healthy soul. And this is important to me, because ultimately there's not a promise that all will go well with his health, but there is an assurance that he all is well with his soul. You know, to make it just a a little bit personal for you guys, I think um, those of you at least who are in gospel community with me understand that um, I'm married to a a wife who has uh, chronic pain and and, um, illness. My wife has a a disease called lupus, which just means that her um, autoimmune system doesn't know the difference between unhealthy tissue and healthy tissue, and so it just kind of attacks whatever it wants. Um, And so... Uh, one of the ways that you, that you address that is you take immunosuppressants, but that means that it's, your immune system is not working to fight off the bad stuff either. And so you're either in pain from your immune system attacking stuff it ought not to, or you're sick because your immune system's not doing anything. And that's kind of the life of somebody who's battling that particular disease. Now, there was one particular um, flare, we call them, of this disease where um, she had a pretty severe attack on her large and small nerve fiber endings that led to irreparable damage to her nerve endings so that she gets these shooting pains throughout her life. And so my my wife's life is marked by pretty persistent pain and illness, and I invite you guys into that to help you understand that in ministry, there are people like me who tend to focus on the soul. I try to love my wife by pointing out that, listen, babe, I know that you're suffering, but all is well with your soul. Let me remind you that all is well with your soul, and we need to hear that, don't we? But she also needs a back rub, right? And she also needs me to enter in and to help to make dinner and and all of the ways that we might show love for the whole person by entering into the tangible needs of the day. And this is where we start to see the love of the church come in, and some of you guys know my family, and you have been the agents that God has used to express his love for the whole person in my wife's life. When you guys bring over dinners, or when you offer to babysit, or when you say, when's the last time you guys went on a date, and you drop a gift card in my mailbox, or those types of things, where you show me and my wife that she is seen, and you enter into the bodily suffering, you, like Paul, are saying, it's my prayer that all would go well with you in good health but I celebrate that all is well with your soul. And here's the thing, there is no promise that all will go well with the health, but there is a promise that all is well with your soul if you are found in Christ Jesus. And Paul knew all, all about that, right? Like Paul would talk, we joke, my wife also has kidney stones, so I don't, I'm not up here to like read you her medical records though, so, but she also gets kidney stones, right? And, she's, um, and so we joke in my home that the thorn in the side that Paul talked about was kidney stones. Or that, that, yeah, that Paul talked about, uh, where the uh, where his ki- were kidney stones. I don't know that for sure, but Paul knew all about suffering, right? And yet he was he walked in uh, close relationship with many, caring about uh, their bodily needs being met, while he himself would be shipwrecked and snake bitten and things like that, right? So being an apostle didn't because uh, Paul and John were both apostles. Being apostles doesn't blind you to the realities of the fallen condition, but it does give you hope that. If you were there and you saw, like, Lazarus raised from the dead or Jairus' daughter brought back or you saw the, the woman with the issue of the blood uh, for those t- 12 long years dried up in a moment or you saw the, the, the blind receive their sight or you saw the deaf receive their hearing or you saw the lame get up and walk, when you see stuff like this, you pray in earnest in faith in your God that He can certainly address the bodily needs of of his people on this side of eternity, and so we want to pray with boldness, but we also carry one another, and we can't do that. I'll tell you the longest unanswered prayer of my life is that my wife would be healed, and that's where you guys enter into that space, and you say where my pastor can no longer pray in this area, or where his knees are shaking. We carry in boldness these prayers of, of that it would go well With Sarah's body right so this is very a personal passage for me but I also preach it this morning to know if you live in the same world that I do you are not a stranger to suffering you are not a stranger to ailments and to illness and to pain and so we are to carry this role for one another where we tend to the spiritual vitality of the church but we also enter in to the bodily life of the church because that's what families do And sometimes there is this disembodied, hyper-spiritualized way that we interact with one another where we say peace be with you, go and be fed, but we don't want to enter into that space and be the hands and feet of Jesus into that need. And I want to encourage you guys to receive as a gentle rebuke this morning that to follow Jesus is to follow him into both those spaces to tend to the soul and attend to the body. John's concern for bodily and spiritual health of his friends, it stands in contrast to the disembodied philosophies of his day. And I'm praying that we will also stand in contrast to the disembodied philosophies of our day. But truthfully, there's another side of it where we pay no mind to spiritual health and spiritual vitality and we reduce Christianity to goodwill for man. And we've got not-for-profits that want to go out and they want to fill tummies and they want to dig wells, but they never bring the good news of the gospel, which is the fountain of living water for the soul that we might live forever. See, there is no ministry that you can do for man that will tend to his body that can save him from death. No matter whether God answers my prayers for my wife or not and and lets her be the fountain of youth all all the way until she die, yet she will die. But though the body is passing away, there is only one who can save us from this body of death, and that person is Jesus Christ, and his work is at the soul level. We who stand dead before God, spiritually dead in our sin, need new life. We need new creation, and so the ministry of the church is primarily a ministry of the soul. Moving on to 3 John verse 3. I rejoiced greatly, when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Here when John says that he rejoiced greatly, he's showcasing this heartfelt joy upon hearing about Gaius' faithfulness to the gospel that he's walking in. This is once again kind of undergirding this pastoral nature that he has in his personal investment in the life of Gaius. When he says the brothers, he's likely referring to members of the Christian community who have had contact with Gaius, they've seen his actions, and they are now testifying to his living out of the gospel truth. And when these third-party people are acknowledging these deeds of Gaius, it further verifies the the truthfulness of the commendations. And John is speaking about this truth that he's walking in, but what does he call it? He doesn't say the truth. He says what? Your truth. He says that the brothers came and testified to your truth. Now, that's an expression you guys have heard in the modern day, and John means it in a very different way than the way that we use it today, doesn't he? When he speaks about your truth, he is pointing to the gospel's transformational power he's talking about a truth that doesn't remain detached from you as if it's merely something that you learn or something that you hear about academically, but a truth that becomes yours. Because if the truth is a person, if the truth is Jesus Christ, and if the truth is embodied in the gospel testimony of a God who comes on mission to save you by the work of his Son, who then applies The finished work of Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You, church, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, have had the truth Jesus Christ made yours. The truth belongs to you. John is saying the truth belongs to Gaius. The truth becomes the possession of the church because it indwells your very self as indeed you are walking in the truth, signifies the active perseverance of that truth in your life. Walking implies this continued daily experience of the gospel where it's not just this one-time event where I believed something academically, but where that truth actually took residence within me and then became my life. Jesus didn't just say, I am the truth. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. What do you do with the way? Well, you walk along it. And, the Christian, and Christianity was originally called the way in the early church because it demonstrated a people who were walking in a newness of life. And so there is an active engaging with this truth that has taken up residence within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And this prompts us to reflect on a few things. And one of them is the essence of Christian community that it simply cannot be just about attending church services maybe that's your background that i think about the church primarily about like these these rituals and these routines and these ceremonies that i that i fulfill or or i show up to certain places on certain dates and it's about what i receive It can't just be that. It can't just be about what we receive. It's got to be about how we relate to one another in the truth, that when I see it in you and when you see it in me, we call each other to glorify in Jesus all the more as we walk out these testimonies of faith by the renewal of our hearts and our minds. It means that we are with the fellow believers, that we're building each other up, that we're rejoicing in each other's growth like we see here, that we're holding each other accountable to the gospel in our walks with God. And second, I think that we see in this phrase testimony to your truth, that we need to be pondering the testimony of our lives. There's this beautiful portrait where Gaius, just in his natural interaction with these itinerant missionaries, the way that he received them, the way he expressed hospitality, that it, it, within, with, it within itself was a testimony to the truth that lived within him. And so I think there's an invitation for us to look inwardly about the testimony of our lives. Are we living in such a way that we are demonstrating what we profess with our mouths? Can the fellow brothers and sisters who walk among us tell that you are a fellow brother and sister? Do I recognize that I've got a brother in the room? It's a question that we ought to walk through together. How does the solid, unchanging truth of the gospel contrast with the very malleable and very subjective attitude toward the truth today? Because when the world says talk, talks about living your truth, what they mean is that the truth is unknowable, that the truth is, is soft, it's squishy, that the truth is kind of what you make it, that each person has their own truth, that really it's just about it's a matter of interpretation or about need, right? But John's talking about it entirely differently. He says there is one truth and that that truth has become Gaius's truth as evidenced by its flowing outward from him. The truth is Jesus Christ. The truth is the gospel. And those who have rejected Jesus Christ do not have the truth. But those who have received Jesus Christ not only have the truth, but that truth has become their very own because it has made them a new creation. So those who have the truth within them can tell when they are with somebody else who has the truth within them because we function to build one another up in the truth. And then thirdly, I think we see that living out our faith, walking in the truth, is not a passive thing. It's not merely something that we do in here, but we see it in the example of the relationship between John and Gaius, that it's something we do out loud. It's something we do with one another. It's something that we do even with total strangers, like we see with Gaius and these itinerant missionaries. Moving on to verse four. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So here again, we see the pastoral heart of John when he says, I have no greater joy. It exemplifies this deep sense of fulfillment that John likely felt looking specifically into Gaius's life and seeing evidence of new life in him, seeing him walking in the truth. He loved Gaius specifically and loved hearing Gaius's story specifically. He's got this sense of fulfillment and joy because of the spiritual mentorship that, that existed between them. And I think that it mirrors the joy that Christ talked about in heaven when one sinner repents. There's this immense joy that followers draw from the seeing the spiritual progress of other brothers and sisters in the faith. And this joy is, flows from the very heart of God. John says, my children, when he's talking about them. And this is not just like a ter- term of endearment although it's it's that but it's also a term of responsibility isn't it fathers a term of responsibility we see it when the apostles write. We see it when the authors are of a considerable spiritual maturity or authority, that, and it represents those who are brought to faith in Jesus through their ministry. So he might call his children those who became Christians on account of the apostolic ministry. It might also refer to those who are being directly discipled and mentored in their faith by him. And then he says again that he's delighted to hear what the, he's walking in the truth and He repeats it again, representing this active, ongoing walking in light of God's word and the gospel message, which was encapsulated in the way, in the truth, in the life. I remember when I first moved to Muskoka, um, we lived in a rental over on Main Street, and a young couple moved in next door to us. And uh, he was stationed here as his first station as an enlisted airman, and. Um, uh, he came from the Seattle area, and he had been dating a woman uh, who came with him in order that they could continue their relationship after he had gone. Active duty, they were living together next door. We got to know them a little bit, had bonfires with them, movie nights with them, got to know them, shared the gospel with them, and it came time for them to get married. He proposes, she says yes, and they had learned that I'm a pastor, and so they said, well, we need somebody to do the ceremony, would you, would you marry us? And I told them that because I'm a pastor, that I very specifically really only marry Christians. I marry Christians because only Christians understand that marriage is a covenant between two believers and their God. And so it's not just a ceremony for me. And so if they're just looking for kind of a, a for-hire minister to do that, that they can find that and I can refer them. But that for me to marry them, they need to be Christians. And really on my part, I prefer really just to marry members of my own flock. But I said, I'd love to do marriage counseling with you guys, though. You know, we're neighbors. I love you guys. And so let's do that. So we spent 12 weeks doing that. And in the process, they both came to recognize that they were unrepentant sinners in need of grace. And both of them fall on their faces and both of them repent. And they out themselves on just years of hidden sin. And they take off their rings. And they say, we were engaged under a completely different understanding of what this means. But if we're going to do this, we want to do it in a way that honors God. And so she moves out in order that they will not be living in sin together. And then they spend six months rebuilding on the foundation of Christ, put the rings back on, and then I get to marry them. They become members of this church. I get to baptize them on the same day. And then the Lord moves them on to another station elsewhere in the world. Like, you think I feel some kind of way about them? Do you think I feel some kind of way about them? There is a love that I'm going to always feel for this specific couple because of the way that the Lord allowed me to participate in his work of redemption in their lives. And this is the portrait of the church that you are meant to be able to participate in the work of redemption within the church in a way that there are specific people that when you hear that they are walking in the truth that just joy swells up in you, and he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Mothers and fathers, obviously this applies to your literal children church this applies to the brothers and sisters beside you church this applies to the people who live on your streets but i'm telling you that if you don't if you can't say with john that there's no greater joy than to hear that your children are walking in the truth it may be that you've not yet tasted for yourself what true discipleship relationships look like and i want to invite you deeper into that starting with gospel community in order that you can really know some people because how can you love somebody who you don't know but then beyond gospel community, there's so many opportunities, and I just want to plug for you guys uh, this morning that we have a program that we run at, at Mercy's Door just as a something to try to stir this up. We call it Servant Leader Development. It meets on the first Saturday of every month. It's a nine-month thing where basically we go from beginning to end trying to help the church to understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples of Jesus, who walks in discipleship relationships. And this starts up each winter, and so we'll be graduating uh, this last batch of of disciples here in, uh, in the fall, and then we'll kick it off again in the winter. And so if this is something that appeals to you, I'd love to talk to you more about that. We want to commit ourselves to not only walking in the truth, but to encouraging others also to take those steps in the same direction. It's in doing this that we not only bring joy to ourselves, but ultimately to God who has put that joy within us. He loves to see us walking in the truth. Verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. So here again, we see him call him beloved. He's just hanging on to that title, loves this guy and then he highlights this deep affection that he has for Gaius specifically over one thing that he did that showed him that he's walking in the truth he says it's a faithful thing that you do indicating that Gaius has been doing it in a consistent manner when he's doing it faithfully that he's walking out this gospel value in the truth that John is referring to in a specific way through this specific action, and it's this, in all your efforts for these brothers. And so it suggests that Gaius was offering some ongoing support uh, for these fellow Christians, these these itinerant preachers probably that came through, Um, and it says that um, that. It's a faithful thing he'd do in all your efforts, which means that there were probably multiple different things that he was doing for them to try to take care of them. It could encompass a wide range of deeds, could have been just hospitality, taking them into his home, could have been meeting financial needs for them, among others. And then he says he identifies them as strangers, strangers as they are, meaning that these brothers were likely people who were passing through that he was not personally familiar with maybe visiting a local church that gaius either led or was a part of and despite being relatively unknown to him he loves them sacrificially and serves them from gospel truth not because of anything personal between them he was not familiar with them generally speaking and i think this drives home some pivotal christian ideas that jesus gives to us love, faithfulness, hospitality. It's in Gaius' quiet life of gospel-centered service to these people that we actually see that there's potency in those values where an apostle is glorifying Jesus with no greater joy because he hears of the simple hospitality and service of one of the sheep. Like, who is greater in this, le- in this letter? Tell me the truth. When you read this letter, who looks greater the Apostle John, the old man Elder John, who's been walking with Jesus longer than anyone who's ever lived at this point, the last living Apostle, or no name Gaius, who showed some hospitality to some Christians who were passing through. Gaius is the hero of the letter in John's mind. It's beautiful. When John points out that it's a faithful thing that he does, he's drawing our attention to the consistency of faith. He's encouraged by that, and he says that um, he honors Gaius for his efforts to aid the brothers um, who are neither familiar or family to him, and I think that this calls us to expand the love of Christ that we offer to beyond our immediate circle, that we don't want to become inward in the way uh, that we experience and express the love of Christ. You've seen many churches die a slow, painful death when they become inward and self-serving, don't you? You've seen many Christians do the same. And it stands out to me what I'm assuming about Gaius, that this was a man who had an unmet health need that John needed to be praying for, potentially. That he is a person in need of mentoring because he's in this relationship with John. And yet, he's faithfully walking out this love for other people. He had excuses, it appears, to be focusing on myself right now. I got some needs that I need you to be praying for. I'm personally being discipled myself by John right now. And yet... He wasn't waiting until he graduated, until his need was met, and until he was no longer needing to be discipled by John before he was starting to extend care to others. And this is where I say that the modern church needs to follow the testimony of Scripture that everyone, no matter where you are in your walk with Jesus, has something to give away to somebody else, especially within the church. And that We don't arrive. I've got blind spots just like you you might have a specific insight into my life from our Lord Jesus Christ to love me and serve me in a way that only you can because of the vantage point that he's given you into my life, or you might have an opportunity to serve and love me in a way that only you can, and likewise I, we each have our function and our role to play in the church, and Gaius, who has his own stuff that needs prayer, and is in his own discipleship relationship, still saw that it was fitting for him to enter into these people's story to extend care. You know what I have? Well, I've got a House, I've got some cash. Whatever it was that he did to support the ministry, he didn't wait until he got to a certain point before he was willing to enter into it. You understand? I think that there is some um, application here for Compassion International. We don't like we just go left to right through books of the Bible, and so um, I didn't get to like try to pick a text that fits well for Compassion Sunday. It turns out, though, that a whole bunch of the Bible is about loving people. And so, I get to try to make it work. But there's this admonition to expand the love of Christ beyond your borders, beyond your immediate family, beyond the people you know by name. And so, for us to be preaching this on a Sunday where we've got 15 kids out here who who are plugged in with the church. I got, I've got two compassion kids, uh, Yedo and Rahel from Indonesia. We've exchanged many letters uh, this year uh, through the sponsorship relationship. And this is kind of the way that it worked for me. My family looked at our budget and our giving budget, and we said, I don't think we can do two. And there was another family in the church who said, well, we can do the sponsorship part, but I'm concerned that in this season of life, that we wouldn't keep up on the meaningful correspondence with the kid. Um, that we would want to. So if we sponsor an additional one, would you be willing to kind of pilot that sponsorship and interact with these kids? And so we said, that's amazing. And so we get to exchange letters with two kids, but we financially sponsor just the one. And, and these letters are incredible. You always think, I think, when you enter into some of these things that you're really doing something. But they pray for you. These kids pray for Muscuta, by name. They, at this point, these two kids from Indonesia are aware that there is a gospel work happening in Miskuta and Scott Air Force Base where there's this guy who is praying that many would come to know him. And, hey, that's what we want in our village too. You pray for my village, I'll pray for yours. And we exchange these prayers and we exchange these, these Bible verses to encourage one another in the Lord. And yes, right now we get to also help keep food in their bellies. I wonder if the Lord is asking you to expand your sphere of care that you can walk in a discipleship relationship with somebody who maybe you'll never meet. Moving on to verse 6. We testified, who testified to your love before the church. You would do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. When he says that these traveling missionaries testified to your love before the church, he's suggesting that these brothers, who he introduced in verse 5, have come and started talking about this love that Gaius showed them. They show his actions as a manifestation of Christian love and shared it with the larger community, the church. And then he says you do well to send them on their journey, which implies that Gaius is commended for what he's done so far, but he's also being admonished to keep it up. To keep on doing what you're doing. Send them on your journey in a manner that is worthy of God. And when we say in a manner worthy of God, what he's saying is he's highlighting the standard to which Gaius and the rest of us are called to be doing ministry and to be extending care to others. Our actions are not just about meeting the practical needs that that the world feels, but they're viewed as a reflection and an embodiment of the grace that we've received in the very person of Jesus Christ, that when people feel the love of the Christian, they feel the love of God. Anyone can dig a well, but can you dig a well in Jesus' name for the sake of the name of Christ? You do well to send them on their journey in a manner that is worthy of God. And God does all of his ministry in a way that exalts the name of the Son. And so when we walk in his manner, we walk in a way that points all the glory to the Son, Jesus Christ. The world does not need another self-glorifying Christian who says, look at me and all that I am doing for God. But who says, look at him and all that he has done for wretched me. In verse 6, John continues. He's nurturing these seeds of faith, love, and community. He's applauding Gaius for his love that is shown toward the needy brothers. And then he raises two points. One, public affirmation for, good, for these love-filled good deeds. We do really well in the church. I want to hear more stories of victory. I want you guys to be talking and sharing about the things that you're celebrating, that the, the victory that you're seeing in the members of the church. When you see grace breakthrough. When you see love-filled works flowing from your brothers, exalt the Lord. Shout out loud. Look at what he is doing. This is what these traveling missionaries have done. They received love, and they just couldn't help but go and talk about it. You'll always meet somebody who will want to tell you how they're not real. They're not, we're not that kind of church. That guy you can find anywhere. It's not even fun the guy who wants you to know that he's not that kind of Christian, who wants to earn points with people by, by pointing out how he's better than his brother. You are like that Christian, you are like that brother in your own ways, all of us are wretched in our sin. We don't offer one good thing apart from the new life that was placed within us by God. We don't get to take credit for any of the love-filled deeds because we wouldn't have it if the Lord, by his own good decree, didn't put it within you. He gets the glory, you get to worship, and that's the right design. I'm telling you, it's freedom And if you're serving for your own glory, you will only serve while the glory is coming in. And when it goes away, your service will dry up. But the Christian service is one that is steadfast. We walk in a manner that is worthy of God because we are consistently drinking deeply from the fountain of living water and then giving away freely what we received abundantly because we don't need to get from you what we are receiving in abundance from our Lord. Only the Christian can serve in this way. Second, we see John nudge Gaius and I think all of us to maintain his loving actions in a manner that is worthy of God. Some of us, we we like to celebrate like monuments where it's like we do the one good thing. It's one thing to pick up a kid and to fill out the form and like auto-debit a sponsorship, right? That part's easy enough. A single act of kindness It's another thing entirely to walk in it, to care, to see, to know, to enter in, to relate, to to write the letter, to follow up, right? You can even do a good thing in a a way that doesn't reflect the love of Christ. There's an invitation for you to go all the way in and to walk in a manner that is worthy of God. Verse 7. I feel like I'm holding you guys hostage here they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. I'll move quickly over this one. When he says that they've gone out for the sake of the name, it's what I've just been saying, that all that they're doing points to him. It's for Jesus' namesake. The name refers to the name of Jesus Christ and his gospel. It implies that the missionaries who were staying with Gaius were ones who were missionaries of the true gospel, going out in the name of Jesus to do kingdom work. And when it says that they accepted nothing from the Gentiles, it suggests that the missionaries were accepting no help. Or support from non believers. And this is, I think, wisdom for us because it helps them to avoid entanglements and obligations that could interfere with the spreading of the gospel and also ensures that the gospel that they're preaching cannot be misconstrued as being self seeking or profit oriented. And so, by, by only receiving help from the Gaiuses, the brothers in the faith, to, and being dependent upon God through the brotherhood to carry out this gospel ministry, they were able to preach the direct gospel. At Mercy's Door, we do this in some, in some tangible ways. There's wisdom for us in all of this. The pastors, especially the staff pastors, I'm on staff with the church, we choose not to know what anybody gives at Mercy's Door. I don't want to know that information. Why? Because I, I don't trust myself. If I find out that some dude comes in here and he's responsible for half the giving in the church and my family, my wife and my kids are depending on the generosity of the church for the ministry and all of that, I might be a little bit slower to say some things to that guy. I would, I hope not. I don't think I would, but I'll tell you what, I don't want to find out. And so we say, hey, you know what? what we're going to do is we're going to to try to walk in integrity in the way that we do finances at the church. And so the staff elders don't look at who gives what. What I do want to know as a shepherd is is a brother in Christ not giving at all? If a brother in Christ isn't giving at all, is is that something we ought to take note of like that you're struggling, that you're suffering and there's something to enter into there? Or is this an area where you're not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ over your life yet? Is there something to talk about there? I might want to know that. I really don't want to know the rest because I don't want to be influenced by it. Well, these, these um, missionaries were the same. They didn't want to be influenced or entangled by the, the money that is ultimately God's that was necessary for them to carry out their ministry. And I think that it highlights the purity of the mission and the integrity of the mission. It's a challenge for us all because if we're going to do ministry in, for the sake of the name of Jesus, we must do it with the highest standard of integrity, and so we want to strive for that. Accepting nothing from the Gentiles makes sense. It sounds harsh at first, but what their goal is to keep the gospel message pure. That ultimately, if I come, I mean, you'll see some of this. You'll see the charlatans on TV. Just call this number, make a donation of any amount, and we'll send you this bottle, and you're going to pour it on your foot, and your foot's going to heal. There's no shortage on the people who are in the ministry for, for selfish gain. But these workers weren't like that. And so in our lives, if you're serving an official ministry or whether or not you are uh, representing Christ in your workplace or in your neighborhood, um, strive to do it with integrity because you're doing it in the name of Jesus. Last verse. Therefore, verse 8, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Therefore, we ought to support such men. It's an inference from five to seven. We're talking about these these itinerant preachers showing um, hospitality and compassion to them. Um, And then it it points us to our collective responsibility uh, to cater to the need of the workers in ministry. When we say that that we may be fellow workers of the truth, I hope that this will give you an idea about what it looks like to partner financially um, or in hospitality with with the workers in ministry. Not all of you are going to be called to go and minister to an unreached people group in Nepal. Now, all of you guys are going to be called to the, be full-time missionaries or full-time pastors. Not all of you are going to be called to go work for Compassion International and plant a church in an unreached area so that the kids who are receiving the food and water can also hear about Jesus. But when you give to the work of the ministry, what, what John says is that, we, is that in doing so, we become fellow workers for the truth that you join in on the labor by your gospel participation through the support of these men. And so there's a call to all of us to participate in whatever role and lot God has for you um, in the work of the ministry for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Some practical applications. Support missionaries and ministers. At Mercy's Door, we have uh, a, a missionary in Japan, Will and Joe Ruck. We've got a card out on the table that you can grab. This is, uh, these are people that are friends of mine that are seeking to get the gospel out through print materials in um, the southern province in Japan. Um, if not them, someone else. But partnering with missionaries directly is one way that you can apply this. Um, hospitality to strangers. Um, When people come through here and you don't really know them yet, but you identify that you're talking about a, a, a brother or a sister in the faith, how you welcome them in is a ministry in and to itself, so much so that it caught the awe of an apostle when he saw Gaius doing it. Living out truth in love within the church, meaning that you're encouraging a culture in your own relationships where you're not just saying the truth with harshness or just trying to do fluffy love where we don't really talk about the gospel and how it works its way into life, but that you authentically relate to one another in a way where you're trying to build one another up for the sake of the ministry and partnering with gospel-advancing ministries. It's like Compassion International, which is ultimately where I want to land today. We only do Compassion Sunday once a year. Last year we brought 15 kiddos and we said, hey, the church can only do so much. There's a thousand things we could do. And so we wanna select our partners mindfully. And like I said, anyone can dig a well, but who's bringing the gospel next to the clean water? And Compassion International is doing that work, and they've got a rock-solid reputation. They're run by Christians, and they're seeking to do the work of the Lord. And so this is one of our partners. We've only got four. We partner with Mosaic Crisis Pregnancy Center in Fairview Heights, in order to partner with them, to uh, the work that they're doing to defend the unborn. We partner with Restore Network of St. Clair County in order that we can enter in for, f- with foster children and orphans in our county to extend the love of Christ to them. We partner with Compassion International in order to be the hands and feet of Jesus for those in need who we may never meet. And we partner with the Moscuto Weekends Meals Program to ensure that the hungry in our own community are getting nutritious meals all year long. I'd love to do a ton more, but this is what we do now and we do better together. When we all bear these burdens together, we can say that mercy's door entered in and made a difference for the sake of the gospel. And so, as in conclusion, I'm asking that you guys will will pause and think about how you are to respond to the example of the relationship between John and Gaius and these itinerant preachers, and how you can respond in a way in your life where we can model this Christian love and truth and love for one another through our actual deeds of sacrificial love. Here, there's an opportunity for you this Sunday. There's always opportunities. And I just want to help you to walk in it. And so I'm going to invite you to pray on that now and leave you with, with this quote from um, John Bunyan who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. He said, The growth and spread of God's kingdom on earth have various means and instruments, but the labor and service of God's elect are especially used above all things. The Lord's going to have his way. He's going to do his good things, but in his pleasure, he likes to use the church. And so there's an invitation from him to walk in what he's called you to today and every day. Let's pray into that end now.